We're going through a series of messages in the book of Hebrews, and we find ourselves this morning in Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 13 to 20. Heard about a fellow who saw his neighbor coming home. He had obviously been fishing, and so he asked him uh, how the fishing had gone. The fellow said, better. Last week I went out for four hours and didn't catch a thing. Today I've got the same results in less than three hours. Fishermen are incurably optimistic. And many people put Christians and fishermen in the same boat. They, they view us as having the same kind of optimism. But optimism and biblical hope are not the same thing. Biblical hope is optimistic, but it differs greatly from worldly optimism. It differs greatly from positive thinking. It differs greatly from just a cheery disposition that looks on the bright side. It differs greatly from just seeing the glass as half full. It differs greatly from just wishful thinking. Biblical hope is based on truth and certainty. We are not mere optimists. We are people filled with the hope of the certainty of God's promises to us in Jesus Christ. And since the Bible calls our God the God of hope in Romans 15, 13, we who represent Him to this hopeless world are to be people of hope. Now the writer is writing to a group of Christians who are facing hardship and persecution because of their faith. In fact, some among their group are already abandoning Christ and returning to Judaism. And so he's writing this book to take their focus off of the Old Covenant and putting their focus on the New Covenant. He's taking their focus off of Judaism and putting their focus on Jesus and the superiority of Jesus Christ. And what he is trying to do is instill in them biblical hope. Not just a positive, cheerful disposition, but a steady attitude of joy based on the promises of God. And in the passage we're going to look at this morning, verses 13 to 20, he uses a metaphor used only here in the Bible. And that's the metaphor of an anchor. And to see that, I want you to flip over to verse 19. He says, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now what does an anchor do? Well, the main reason a ship needs an anchor is to ride out the storms. The anchor keeps the ship from being blown into the rocks or the reefs nearby. And even in a safe harbor, a ship needs an anchor so that it will not drift into dangerous waters. Now the interesting thing about an anchor is that it is invisible and yet invaluable. When an anchor is doing its job, you can't see it, but you can't do without it. And on the ocean of life, what is our anchor? Well, verse 19 says it is our hope in Christ. And what does our hope in Christ anchor? Well, verse 19 says it is an anchor of the soul. So this end of the rope or the chain is tied to my soul. And the anchor, rather than going down into the ocean, goes up into the heavens behind the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. In other words, this end of the rope is tied to my soul and the anchor is anchored to the very throne of God. And how long will it be anchored there? Verse 20 says, forever. And Jesus has gone there as a forerunner. What does a forerunner do? He leads the way for others to follow. 
So in this analogy, Jesus is not only keeping us secure while we are going through the storms of life, he is ultimately going to pull us in to where he is as well. So you see, our hope is not in hope itself. It is in Christ and all that we have been promised in him. That's our anchor. Now, if I was in a boat and the wind and the waves were picking up, the question that I would be asking is, how secure is the anchor? Is the anchor going to hold? That's why the most important question that you could be asking today is, in the storms of life, is my anchor going to hold? And in our passage this morning, the writer gives us four reasons why, when our hope is in Jesus Christ, we are secure. Four reasons why, as a believer in Jesus, my anchor holds. And those four reasons are God's person, God's pattern, God's purpose, and God's pledge. First of all, God's person. Notice verse 13. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. There is no one greater than God. A lot of people go around saying, I am the greatest. There is only one person in this universe who can honestly say, I am the greatest, and that is God. God is the greatest. Now that could be good news or bad news, depending on what God is like. God is the greatest. What is He like? Well, if you look at verse 18, right in the middle of the verse, it says, it is impossible for God to lie. Now why is it impossible for God to lie? Well, the answer is because if God lied, He would deny His very nature. Isaiah 65, 16 says, He is the God of truth. In John 14, 17, Jesus says to the Father, Thy word is truth. Every word He has ever uttered is absolute truth. He has no capacity to lie. So you see, if God makes a promise, He will keep it. And what has God promised us? For our Titus chapter 1 and verse 3 says, In the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago. God promised eternal life to those who trust in Jesus, and He cannot lie. You see, God's person makes our hope secure. James chapter 1 and verse 17 says, Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. God never deviates from His character. He never does something and we say, well, that was out of character. He never deviates. There's no shifting shadow. He never deviates from His promises. Everything God says is true. Every promise that He has made is true. And that's why words like John 1.12 are so exciting. It says, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in His name. What a promise. You say, Dan, well, you know, how do I know that that promise is true? The first reason is because God said it, and God cannot lie. No, we're prone to bend the truth when it suits our purposes. I've played golf with some of you. We don't want to look bad, so we tell little white lies. We, we don't want to pay all those taxes, so we overlook a few things on our tax form. We want to keep certain things undercover, so we withhold the truth. But you know, in spite of our propensity toward compromising the truth, we are offended whenever anyone would question the truthfulness of our word, and we become outraged if anyone would directly call us a liar. Well, try to imagine what it's like to be God for whom it is impossible 
to lie. He has never told a lie in all of eternity. And you and I sit around and we question and we doubt and we disbelieve his promise of eternal life to the one who believes in Jesus. And when we do that, you know what we're doing? We're calling God a liar. The Bible tells us that in 1 John 5.10. It says, The one who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the witness that God has borne concerning his Son. And the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. That's how important this promise is. It's tied to the very credibility of God. It's tied to the very character of God. Our hope of future salvation is certain because of the person of God. He is incapable of lying. Second reason our anchor holds is God's pattern. And we see that in verses 13 to 15. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And thus, having patiently waited, Abraham obtained the promise. The second reason that our hope of salvation is secure is because God's promises have never failed anyone who trusted in Him. That's God's pattern. And to verify that, the writer uses Abraham as exhibit A. When it comes to faith, Abraham is the classic example. In Romans chapter 4 and verse 11, Paul called Abraham the father of all who believe. When it comes to faith, he's the father. And then later in verse 18 of that chapter, he adds, in hope against hope, Abraham believed. Abraham trusted God against all odds, and he found God to be faithful. In fact, Abraham's whole life is the story of God promising and Abraham responding in faith. Remember that Abraham, or God appeared to Abraham while he was still named Abram, and he was living in Ur of the Chaldees. And he commanded Abram to leave his relatives, to leave that city, and to go to a place that God would show him. Now, obeying that command was not easy in that day. We live in a day when everybody's mobile, and, and the idea of moving somewhere doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But in that day, you couldn't just pack up a U-Haul and head out on the interstate. You couldn't just pack up and leave and, and keep in touch with everybody back home through your email or through your cell phone. They didn't ha even have snail mail in that day. So to move hundreds of miles away meant permanent separation from your family and your friends. And Abraham didn't know if the people of the new, new land were going to be friendly or hostile. He didn't know if they even spoke his language. He couldn't just go to a real estate agent and say, help me settle in to the land. He didn't know how he was going to provide for his family. And yet Abraham obeyed. And what was God's promise to him? We see it in verse 14. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. God promised to multiply Abram's seed into a great nation. Now when God made that promise to Abram, his wife Sarah was barren. He had no children. It's kind of interesting. His name Abram means exalted father. Can you imagine his encounters with the people when he and Sarah moved into Canaan? Hi, I'm Abram, exalted father. And his neighbor in Canaan says, well, exalted father, how many children do you have? None. And then God added insult to injury because when Abram was 99 years old. The Lord changed his name to Abraham. Abraham means father of a multitude. He'd been waiting for 24 years to get this promised son. He has not got the son yet. And God says, I'm going to change your name from exalted father to father of a multitude. He has no children. He has one child through Hagar. 
Ishmael, and his name is now father of a multitude. He has to go around and tell everybody, don't call me Abram anymore. Call me Abraham. Don't call me exalted father. Call me father of a mob. That would be like me being named Harry. And then God comes to me and says, I'm going to change your name to bushy-haired Harry. You know, Abram finally got his promised son. And then God wasn't through challenging his faith because in Genesis 22, God said, I want you to take your only son and I want you to take him up on Mount Moriah and I want you to sacrifice him there. And what strikes me in Genesis chapter 22 is it says Abraham got up early in the morning and he headed out to obey God. And he took his servants with him and when he got to the base of the mountain, he left his servants there and he said to his servants in Genesis 22, 5, we are going to worship and we will return. Now, was he lying to his servants? No. He was going to sacrifice his son. And later in Genesis chapter 11, verse 19, we're told that Abraham believed that God would raise his son from the dead. He went up there planning to sacrifice Isaac, knowing that God had made his promise and God must be planning to raise him from the dead in order to bring him back and fulfill that promise. That's faith. Abraham died at the age of 175. And though Genesis chapter 25 tells us that he had many children through Ishmael, he had many descendants through the sons that he had with Keturah, as far as God's promise was concerned, he died at 175. He still had only one son and two 15-year-old grandsons, Esau and Jacob. He had Isaac, Esau, and Jacob when he died at 175. And the promise also included land. It was the promised land. But when Abraham died at the age of 175, the only real estate he owned was a cave that he bought to, to bury Sarah in. But the Bible tells us he died in faith. In fact, later in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10, it says of him that he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And though Abraham did not see it in his lifetime, history has validated God's promise both physically and spiritually. There are an estimated 14 million physical children of Abraham alive today. That's the Jewish people. And beyond that, there are multiplied millions of his spiritual children alive today. What's the lesson for us? There has never been anyone who trusted in God's promises and was finally disappointed. God may delay the visible answers to his promises, but he always answers in his time, not our time. In fact, you may not see the answer to those promises in your lifetime. You not, may not see the answers until you get to heaven, but he is utterly trustworthy to keep his word. That's God's pattern. And he has promised eternal life to you if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ and you can count on it as absolute truth. Third reason our anchor holds is God's purpose. Look again at verse 14. God says, I will bless you and I will multiply you. See, this whole thing is God's plan. It's God's purpose. God is carrying it out. It wasn't Abraham's idea to leave Ur in the first place. It wasn't Abraham's idea to father a great nation. It was God's idea. And it was all God, part of God's eternal plan. And we see that because who chose Abraham? Abraham didn't volunteer. God could have chosen anybody in Ur of the Chaldees or anywhere else for that matter. But he chose Abraham over everyone else. He chose Isaac instead of Ishmael. He chose Jacob instead of Esau. Why? Because it was God's purpose. In fact, if you look ahead to verse 17, we read the phrase, the unchangeableness of his purpose. You see, God's promise to Abraham had to be kept 
Not just because of God's nature, but because of God's plan. Not just because of God's person, but because of God's purpose. And his plan was to bless all the nations of the world through Abraham's offspring, the Jews. And how was he going to do that? This nation that began with a miracle baby, Isaac, was going to have another miracle baby, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And that was God's eternal plan. In fact, that's why when God made his covenant with Abraham, it was an unconditional covenant. If you read Genesis chapter 15, God told Abraham to bring a bunch of animals together. And he went out and he got a heifer and a goat and a ram and a turtle dove and a pigeon, and he cut them all in half and he laid them in a row. And in that day, the custom was that when you made a, a contract with someone, when you had a covenant with someone, what you did was you made it in blood. And you split these animals in half and the two of you walked between those animals as a commitment on both sides that you were going to fulfill your promise. But when God made the covenant with Abraham, it was unconditional. And I know that because you know where Abraham was when God went between the animals? Abraham was asleep. Which tells me that this covenant was not so much a covenant between God and Abraham. It was a covenant between God and God. God made a commitment to himself to fulfill his covenant promise to Abraham. And so it was not dependent upon Abraham. It was dependent upon God's purpose. You see, God cannot go back on his promise because he would be breaking a covenant that he made with himself. Which really means that you and I are as secure as the purposes of God. And Psalm 3311 says, the purposes of the Lord stand firm forever. And then the fourth reason our anchor holds is God's pledge in verses 16 to 18. Notice verse 16, for men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. How do men confirm their word today? They make an oath. If you go into a courtroom to testify, you will put your hand on the Bible and you will raise your right hand and you will say, I solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. The oath, the pledge, the swear that you make is the confirmation of your word. And then verse 17 says, in the same way God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath. In the same way as we do, God made an oath. Now, God's word by itself should be sufficient since his word is always true. But when God says it with an oath, when God says it with a pledge, he wants, to know, he wants us to know that it is a done deal. Now, the only problem God has, as we read in verse 13, is that when he wanted to swear, there's nobody greater than him. So he had to swear by himself. In fact, in the Old Testament, men would say things like, as the Lord lives... I will do this. Well, Genesis 22, 16 says, God says, by myself, I have sworn. In other words, as I live, so I will do this. And so verse 17 indicates that God actually condescended because of the weakness of our flesh. He condescended to add to his word a pledge in order to give us double assurance. And that's what we read in verse 18. In order that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement. What are the two unchangeable things? God's promise and God's pledge. And these two things make our future salvation, as he says in verse 19, both sure and steadfast. We have an anchor that holds. Which only leaves one question, and that is, 
Who has this assurance? Who can say, my anchor holds? Well, in verse 18, he gives three characteristics of the person who has this hope. And I want you to notice them. Two are past tense. One is present tense. The first one is, look at verse 18. He says, we who have fled for refuge. That's characteristic number one. The people he's talking to are people who have fled for refuge. Now, the writer here doesn't tell us, he doesn't specify what we have taken refuge from, but his Hebrew readers would know this phrase from the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, God established cities of refuge. You can read about it in Numbers chapter 35. We're told that when someone was guilty of manslaughter, the person who was the next of kin of this dead individual could avenge his blood by killing the culprit. Now, that would save a lot of court costs. You kill my brother, I kill you. But the bit of mercy that comes into it is if that individual who killed the other person could get to the city of refuge, once he got inside the gate of the city of refuge, he was safe and secure. And of course, these cities of refuge are a spiritual picture of the refuge that God has provided for sinners to flee from God's wrath to come. And where do we flee for refuge? We flee to Jesus. Which is very interesting in this passage because if you look at verse 20, we find out where Jesus is and it tells us he is inside the veil. He is in the holy of holy places. Now that is the last place that a guilty person would think of fleeing. If you were guilty, you wouldn't run into the holy of holy places in the Old Testament because we're told that God's very presence would put to death any sinner who entered the holy of holy places. So you have an interesting situation here. You have guilty people fleeing for refuge into the very holy of holy places. And why can we flee there and find security and safety? We flee there and find security and safety because Jesus is our high priest in the holy of holy places representing us. And because, as it tells us here, he is also our forerunner. He has already gone to the cross. He has already gone into death. And he busted out the other side through resurrection. And he has ascended into heaven. And he's in the very presence of God. And we are welcome there because of his sacrifice on our behalf. And then the second characteristic he talks about here is also past tense. If you notice verse 18, it goes on to say, We who have fled for refuge in laying hold of the hope set before us. In contrast to chapter 2 and verse 1 where it talks about people who drift away, in contrast to chapter 6 and verse 6 where it talks about people who fall away, he says, we have laid hold of hope. 1 Timothy 1.1 says that Christ Jesus is our hope. So when we lay hold of him, we are laying hold of hope. My, my granddaughter is about that tall. And sometimes she comes up and lays hold of my pant legs. And when she comes up and lays hold of my pant legs, kind of like this, I always lay hold of her and pick her up. You see, she is laying hold of me, but I am also laying hold of her. And that's the way it is in our relationship with Jesus Christ. We think we're laying hold of him, but the reality is that he's really laying hold of us. Paul said it this way in Philippians 3.12, I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. What are the characteristics of those who can say my anger holds? The first characteristic is we have fled for refuge by faith in Jesus Christ. The second is we have laid hold of hope in Him. And the third is present tense. 
Notice what it says in verse 18. In order that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, notice, we may have strong encouragement. One of the reasons we need an anchor is to keep us from drifting into things that would sink us, especially during storms. And I would suggest to you that as a Christian, you face numerous storms that threaten your hope in Christ. Have you noticed that? There are storms of false doctrine that want to blow us off course. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 14 uses this analogy. It says, We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. We are in a ship and there are false teachings that are coming along wanting to blow us off course. How do we weather that storm? We hold firmly to the promise of salvation in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. We also face the storms of doubt. We find ourselves questioning our faith or even questioning God's promises. Abraham did that. Abraham doubted when he went into Sarah's maid Hagar and she conceived Ishmael. He was trying to fulfill God's plan in his own strength, apart from faith. And yet we excitedly look forward and see that Abraham, after that, was a man who in hope against hope believed God. And then thirdly, there are storms of difficulty where we often find ourselves wondering why God is allowing this to happen in my life. We find ourselves wondering and even questioning whether he really loves us. And how do we weather those storms? We realize that God who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all has promised to bring us through every conceivable difficulty to ultimate glorification. That's Romans chapter 8. And I would remind you that in this passage it says that it is an anchor of the soul. It doesn't say it's an anchor of the body. You know, my body is deteriorating. I notice it every time I look in the mirror. That's why I don't have any hair. I am dying. My body is going downhill. But the, the anchor, what is anchored in my life is not my body, it's my soul. And though something may go wrong in my body physically, I realize that I am anchored to the very throne of God in terms of my spiritual destiny. And that's what gets me through the storm. I also realize that God's primary concern for me right now is not my comfort. It is Christ's likeness. He wants to change me into the likeness of Jesus Christ, and oftentimes that involves storms in my life to get me there. And I need to stay focused on that so that I hold on to my anchor and get through the storm. And then fourth, there are even storms of defeat where we fall into sin and dishonor the Lord. On two separate occasions, Abraham lied to the king, told him that his wife was really his sister, and he fell into defeat. We do that as well. How do we weather the storms of defeat? We realize that we have a high priest in the very presence of God who is praying for us. And we realize that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. The fact that I know that my anchor holds should give me great encouragement in the storms of life. There was an article in World Magazine about a man who made a trip to Russia in 1993. As he was walking down the streets, he felt conspicuous uh, and, and couldn't really figure out why. Uh, he was trying to blend in, but it was obvious that the people knew he was not Russian. So he asked a group of Russian educators with whom he was working whether it might be his American clothes, his jeans and his Chicago Bulls shirt. They said, well, no, it's not your clothes. We have those clothes in Moscow. He said, well, what is it then? And they huddled together again and talked for several minutes, and then one, speaking for the group, answered politely, it's your face. He said, my face? How does my face look different? 
And they talked again for a moment, and then one of the teachers quietly said, you have hope. Paul said in Ephesians 2.12 that we live in a world that has no hope and is without God. So as Christians, we should stand out as people of hope in this hopeless world. My certainty of future salvation is the anchor that God has given me to secure my soul, even in times of storm. Kind of like the older Christian gentleman, when someone asked him what the secret was for his cheerful attitude, he said, I read the last book of the Bible and I know how the story ends. We win. We have a high priest who is in the presence of God and he is there as our forerunner. So the question I would ask you in closing today is, have you taken refuge in him? Have you laid hold of the hope of salvation? Are you experiencing strong encouragement amidst the storms of life? Can you say, my anchor holds? I'm going to have the praise team come back and we're going to close the service with a praise song. I'm going to ask you to think about